Hi, and welcome to Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty, and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. Today's chat is with Sasha Rust from Goodfish Project, amongst many other things. Sasha and I sat up at the long table at the Alps in Paran, surrounded by walls of wine, and we talked all things food, culture, philosophy, and goodness. I really only scratched the surface of Sasha's wealth of knowledge, experience, and his passion for the food industry. We could have talked for hours, but that would have been a really long podcast for you to listen to and transcript for you to read. And this way, I'm leaving you with your own questions and thought spin-offs to explore for yourselves. You're welcome. I met you when I was um, writing about the Good Fish Project, and, um, and I thought then um, that I would really like to talk to you a bit more about, because it seems like you're someone who is all over everything, thank you. Um, Overstatement of the century, but yes. No, like, you're so busy and you've um, got lots of things, and so now I've started reading about you, and I feel like you're really cinematic, because you've got this whole story <laughs> of German ancestry and everything, so maybe we'll start at the beginning. Sure. <laughs> With... Um, because you talked in uh, the thing that I read um, that you the food aspect of things comes from your family. Mm. So maybe, did you always think you were going to be a chef? Um, no, I think the complete opposite. I think I never was <laughs> going to be a chef. Um, but I, I guess you're right. Like I was always surrounded by food. Um, I grew up on a mini hobby farm in the very north of the country and you know, um, spent my time on the reef, uh, sort of swimming and seeing all the fish and all that sort of stuff, we'll get to that later, um, but you know, ultimately, uh, yeah, it's a German family that had just migrated, my granddad was a baker, here cooking dark rye bread uh, 40, 50 years ago in Townsville to essentially a local community that had no idea what those things were, so wow. the business essentially failed. Because <laughs> no Instagram. Because <laughs> no Instagram. No marketing narrative. Also, rye bread in 40 degree temperatures. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, no, it's not right. a thing. Um, and I mean, the, the, it was pretty much an army base and a few migrants at that point. Um, yeah. So his number one customer was the guy that ran the Greek restaurant down the road. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as a, as a kid, very much, you know, making pastries and, and always surrounded by food, produce, all that sort of stuff. My mum has always been a massive gardener. So even today, you know, 60, 70 percent of the food she eats comes out of the garden. So every time I go home, it's just this like lavish creation of all these like beautiful heritage vegetables and things like that so it's pretty pretty amazing to have grown up around that so I think inevitably I was going to have some sort of you know, passion for food I suppose mm. um, did I think I was going to be a chef no that that kind of just happened yeah, yeah. <laughs> what did you think you might do uh, well I mean I went into business school so god knows um, probably um, something very boring and far away from food and far away from anything with any sort of creativity in it but um, I think I might have done made that decision because I thought it was the decision that people make yeah and when you're 19 or 18 or whatever age you are like who the hell knows what you're gonna do yeah um, so I just went hey this looks like something that will teach me something and I did it and then a year and a half in I went came back from a trip overseas to Europe and needed a job and fell into a kitchen and then a decade later I still in a kitchen so yeah 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 wow yeah that's interesting so obviously you've got the background in food but then having a background in loving food doesn't mean you're going to make it as a chef so what do you think 
drew you in um, to staying in there for that long? Sure, yeah. I mean, it's... Um, I guess I'm a fairly competitive person. Not aggressively competitive, but I don't like... Uh, I don't like ever being in a position where I don't feel like can be something if that makes sense like I always feel like I need to like prove to myself that I can do something so when I take on a job or take on a, a role or a project or something like that I need to kind of like nail it <laughs> at least nail it to my own sort of standard otherwise I feel like I've kind of just wasted my time um, it's yeah. a lot of, it's a lot of sort of pressure on myself to kind of do things like that so I think when I started working in the kitchen I was like yeah cool well, if I'm gonna do it let's you know, do it properly and I put myself into ridiculous situations that I definitely wasn't ready for like I became a chef to party when I was probably still an apprentice um, and you know there's really good and bad flow and effects from making those decisions but I guess it was always about challenging myself. But people must have seen something in you to have put you in those positions as well. Yeah, a fake a tea maker, right? Oh, right. <laughs> okay, so good acting. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah so it's interesting you say that because I've spoken to a few people lately that have acknowledged the fact that they um, were really ambitious and that, um, that they were in roles that they couldn't handle and then really had to step back. So is that, what was your trajectory then? Yeah, I mean, I think I've only really just found sort of that point where I've realised I might have been out of my depth. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> and, or maybe not, I, I may, maybe not, I think, um, I, I guess I've sort of changed my tact and I think that's another conversation, but I, I guess this isn't really answering your question, but I guess there's sort of like a point where I realised that a chef is maybe not what I thought a chef was. Um, you know, there's one chef that trains as an apprentice, becomes a CDP, becomes a sous chef, becomes a head chef, becomes an executive chef, and then as a chef. Whereas I now think that being a chef can be so many different things and you can be involved. It's, it's more of a mindset. It's more of like a way of working than it is sort of necessarily your particular role. Like you see what people are doing now and, you know, there's chefs running restaurant empires, there's chefs running catering businesses, there's rest, chefs running food businesses, they're going into media, they're going into all of they're going into farming, they're going into all of these different avenues with a mindset that was kind of bred in a kitchen. Um, mm. And that's... I think the way things are going. I, don't, I think up until recently, most people didn't realise that you could do that, and I don't think until recently people have realised that there's actually some support to be able to do that as well. Okay. And that's the path you've chosen. I guess so. I don't. <laughs> I don't know. I still. I, I think. I, I don't think I've definitely like found my found my next thing forever. But I, but I, I think I've just realised that I may not be the chef that's going to be sort of working in a kitchen from now until I'm sixty. You know, I think there's other ways that I can be involved in food. Um, and for me that's sort of found from this you know love of produce and farming and you know farmers and you know that bigger story that um, I guess I've kind of was passionate about as a kid because I was around it and now it's just sort of come through and I, I, through my whole career I think I was always more excited about that side of it than mm. I was necessarily about the other side which is really interesting and I think I've only realized that recently okay. um, I was describing it to somebody recently as food anthropology because that sort of human intersect with food and the natural world so yeah wow yeah that's really interesting and are you still cooking yeah I mean not actively at the moment because I'm running various other projects and yeah. I've been studying and I've been doing all these things and there's no capacity to do cooking in the middle of that no. outside of some consulting and bits and bits and bobs but I you know I still love it obviously um, and, and not to say I won't ever do it again um but I think the way that I look at that role has definitely changed. So I, I don't know for sure if I'm going to be a full-time head chef in the next six months to a year. Yeah. That's, a, that's a question mark. 
And um, you must have been quite young, young and, and young in your um, career when you step, when you joined forces with Ash Davis to do, to run Copper Pot. Yeah. How did that come about? Um, like all good ideas come about, one too many beers, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I was working in a really bizarre role for a couple of years because I had this dream of, again, um, sort of, I guess I sort of uh, came up with the idea potentially before my intelligence or ability or capacity was there and I was like, I want to open a restaurant. So I found a way to facilitate that, which was, for me, it was taking this weird role that was consulting uh, on a, a shipping industry project, so building out sort of food and beverage systems for, for offshore industry, basically. Super dry and benign okay. and, um, you know, like so far removed from beautiful produce. But hey, they pay you well and they give you heaps of time off to pursue other things. So I found myself working for five weeks on a ship, possibly off Singapore somewhere. And then the next five weeks, I'd be in the south of France making charcuterie. So I had this like couple of years of just amazing polarized like life where I was like literally double lifing it, yeah. but putting money away to open a restaurant. And then this is what I'm saying, cinematic. <laughs> it's already a memoir. I yeah. Anyway, yes. Um, and then, like, meeting Ashley, that was kind of by coincidence. Um, uh, old sous chef of mine, when I was apprentice, was working for him uh, as his sous chef at Pure South back then. Um, and I went to go help out because I was on one of my off periods. Um, and we just sort of aligned on a lot of a lot of things. We found ourselves again talking about like food anthropology and you know all of those bigger stories around food. I think it just sort of had a lot of similarities in that we both kind of thought about food a little bit deeper than just what was on the plate. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about that depth of food? And you talked about the intersection of um, civilization with food. What, mm. what, where, what are your thoughts around that? What's your driving? God, that is a big question. That is a big question. Uh, I mean, it's it's center too. Uh, there hasn't, I mean, there hasn't been a single culture that has ever developed that hasn't built itself around its food. I mean, it's it's material to our existence, um, and so you know, with that, it's it's you can't separate the two things. So you know, if you have a culture that grew up in a cold climate, you have you know, ingredients that suit that climate and then you have types of cooking that suit that climate and soils and that changes the way that they cook. They might bury things, they might not bury things, they might ferment things in ash, they might, whatever it is, like environment and people and food, and it's all tied together and none of those things can be pulled out and gone, oh, this was developed for some other reason. Like it's always built into a lot of layers of reasons and that's super fascinating to me. And it is, but is it worrying now that we've kind of fucked that because we've, you know, we're not following those rules that we live in this this environment that actually can't support a lot of the things we want to yeah. eat and we're having them so you know is there I a mean, need to pull it back or is it I mean yeah potentially but I mean it depends how meta we want to go right like I mean you could argue that our current dire situation is our version of shaping our own food culture now I mean that's getting a little high level and a little bit sort of um abstract but hey I mean that it is changing the way we eat and the way we cook mm. um I do think that you know, and this is part of the reason why I've done the study I've done, and this is part of the reason why I'm working on projects that I'm doing, is because I do think that the food world can do a lot of it, a far better job at listening to science and embedding that into the way that we, we cook and the way that we work around food. We have this untapped resource of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of years worth of understanding, and yet we only embed that into certain parts of what we do. Um, 
I think that's a big, big gap there at the at, at every level, from you know farming to cooking the restaurant to growing at a really boutique level. Um, there's there's an application of, of doing things in a way that is great certainty for the future. Mm. So let's talk a little bit about some of your projects sure. um, and to take you back to the reef. Um, <laughs> Is that how you got involved with the Good Fish Project? Or sure, yeah, like definitely. I think that's that's one of those things that you don't think about at the time, but it's definitely one of those things where you go, oh yeah, there's actually a reason why I'm doing this. Um, I had the pleasure of spending my weekends seeing the reef before it was bleached, before it was dead, um, all of those things, and you just you look at the. You know, I've got one of those before and after photos, like physically in my head. I've seen both sides of it, and that's a pretty impactful. Uh, it's a pretty impactful vision. So I think that by nature, it's. I don't think I've been conscious of it until I kind of got to the senior level in kitchens. But I've but I've always sort of had that concern for the natural world, and then uh, you know that sort of morphed itself into this understanding in the last couple of years where. I just remember that I was having all of these conversations with, with chefs going, hey, you know, we, we, we want to source things better. We, you know, we want to be more environmentally friendly. Uh, we want to know more about our products. And that we could get all of that information about um, our vegetables. We could get all that information about our beef, about pork, uh, uh, you know, all of those things because those things are farmed. Those things have people attached to them. Those things have a lot of science behind them there's a lot of understanding in that food chain but what we don't have understanding about is wild fish because we know nothing about what happens under the ocean mm. even the scientists know nothing about what happens under the ocean or not nothing but very little um, so the last couple of years I've, I've, I've had that conversation a couple of times you know, a number of times with people going you know it'd be so great if we could sit at the table and talk about a piece of wild fish in the same way that we talk about beef to the point of what it ate what it lived nearby, you know, the land, the terroir that it swam around, like all of these things that we actually pay a lot of attention to as diners and chefs mm. when it comes to everything else, but we just don't talk about at all when it comes to wild fish. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so the Good Fish Project was something that I was actually approached for sort of loosely, um, and it fit from a time perspective and a values perspective, um, and it fit that need. It was, a, it was that thing that goes, okay, cool, here we can tap into science and we can kind of translate that really on a, you know, uh, inaccessible body of knowledge and go, cool, well, how, how do we make that useful at the table? Mm. So was it your idea, the whole, the app and all that sort of stuff? Or no, it? God, no, no. It's <laughs> amazing. No, that's, a, that's about a 15 years worth of work of, wow. of the organisation. So there's so much knowledge and research in that. And so it's kind of inevitable that that should be translated to food service because, it, you know, some people use it. I mean, you spoke with Ben Shuri, he's used it for a few years. Um, yeah, how is the uptake of, you know, since launching it and making it a bit more known? Yeah, good, really positive. People, um, I, I have a lot of conversations with people saying, yeah, well, like, you know, we, we need something like this. You know, it's really valuable to have that information. The bit where it gets hard is where we don't have enough information. Yeah. Um, and that's still just the issue the, with the whole whole concept is that it's still under the water. Um, we still things can change. Can't things they? change so rapidly. Um, we know, unfortunately, very little about the effect of if we take, say, a blue, you know, a southern bluefin tuna out of the water. What does that do to all of the fish that it eats? What other things in that ecosystem are affected by that? Yeah. You know, I use this. This is like a really sort of timely conversation because 
uh, currently on the market, you have people telling you that Southern Bluefin tuna is suddenly sustainable again. Um, but the reality is, is that up until a few years ago, it was fished to about 5% of historical levels, and now it's returned to 11%, but that's 11% of historical levels. And yes, it's increasing, but until you reach a point of around 20%, it's not, it's not sustainable. It can't, mm. it can't sort of contain its fishing level. It can't breed at a rapid enough way to not impact all of the other things. So yes, as a species, healthy, but what about all the other things that rely on it? You know, if you take 100 fish out of the sea, what about all those other fish that rely on that thing? Yeah, that's right. And it's, as you say, it's still unknown, isn't it? That whole underwater thing. It's unfortunately so complex, and it's not something that you can just go, here's your solution. No. Um, and that's what chefs want, though, and that's, and that's a massive struggle. Mm. Um, but you've got to start somewhere. Well, I feel like there's been a shift. Uh, I mean, I know there have always been chefs passionate about um, seasonality and, yeah. and sustainability and those kinds of things, but I feel like everyone's talking about it a lot more now, <laughs> um, for better or worse, but for better, for better. Uh, but you know, sometimes when there's a buzzword, you want to make sure that it's actually genuine. But I just wonder, because um, all the chefs I speak to are obviously really great, <laughs> um, and they, they all seem to really care, and I've yeah. been hearing a lot lately, and it's not that new, but I feel like, it feels like it's new. So, um, not doing the Parisian bistro style of things mm. where you have a recipe and then you get the ingredients but instead saying what is the supplier got yeah. and then building yeah. a dish around that and I've heard um, quite a few of the people I've spoken to lately talk in those terms yeah. but do you think globally because it used to always be a thing that chefs just cooked what they wanted to cook and yeah. to hell with what the customer you know the diner doesn't know any better yeah. so we need yeah. to do you, do you think globally most chefs are into sustainability and seasonality and wanting to, or do you That's still think there's a a really broad question I because I don't think that I don't think you can. Uh, unfortunately, and you you sort of touched on this is sustainability as a word doesn't have a defining like it's not a defining term. It's mm. it's so many things to so many different people. So yes, I think broadly people are into it because it's a buzzword and people you know they love the idea of it and that's why it's applied to every product you buy off the shelf um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the reality of that is it's not actually usually accurate um, so yes I think that everybody wants to do it uh, is everybody prepared to do what it takes to get there no not everybody is a lot of people are um, it's definitely changing because it, people have to change I mean at some point you won't have any something you won't have whatever it is that you're looking for it's just not there and then people change and hopefully we can avoid that but that's right is it is it a myth that it's more expensive to go for products that are more sustainable it is if you don't people? change the way that you work around it yeah um, and what you've mentioned before is absolutely right and I think that's what most chefs are realising now is if you let the ingredient lead you it's not more, it's not more expensive no. Um, if you say go to, the, if you see what's available in the market, you go cool. There's grass whiting available uh, because they're an abundant catch, and they're in the middle of their breeding season. And it's not King George whiting, and it's fourteen dollars a kilo. It's not expensive, and it's hyper sustainable. Mm. If you buy a peach in peak peach season, it's not expensive. If you use the entire thing, or you use, you know. The tops of something of, of, of the carrots as well in something as, as well as the carrots then yes you're making money off things that would have gone in the bin even if you spent more money on it i mean a lot of and this isn't new i think you've as you've said a lot of people are talking about that but when you're highlighting an expensive ingredient it doesn't matter if it's foie gras or a carrot mm. 
Um, if you're highlighting it, it stands on its own merits because of its its quality, its peak seasonness, its and its deliciousness. Foie gras is an interesting example because I think they just outlawed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. that's off. We've well, got to think about other ways of making delightfully. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a point of contention, Moosey. right? I mean, I, I've, I've visited foie gras farms and I've seen gavage and I've held the ducks while it happens and the geese while it happens and a lot less scary than you think. Wow. Um, and this is, where it's, this is where it's a contentious issue. Absolutely. Um, and it's this so is, delicious, though. I, know, I, I like, know. And for somebody with the value set that I've just spoken about, for me to go, well, actually, I've, I know. Kind of, I've sat there holding it while the, while the pipe goes down the throat. And, it's, uh, you, and, and the, the, there's systems built in a good practice around these things. But, I mean, I don't, I, I don't have a clear answer. I'm not, I'm not putting down a position. <laughs> no, and that's, I mean, that's what you say. Sometimes it's about changing um, systems and... And but, understand, I don't know. But know. again, it's like, do we know enough about it? Uh, does, 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 does every person that's making a decision about that, have they done enough research? Have they asked the right people? Mm. Uh, or have they just done what somebody, their peer has told them? Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I visited a, like a, somewhere in France where they were, you know, and I was, and I was struck by the fact, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't talk about this before, that the word for calf is, of course, which is the same word as veal and then all I could think of was looking at these little calves in the darkness and that they were veal and I just thought you know this is awful because mm. I want to eat tender beautiful meat and I just thought what is wrong with us but um but I yeah but I do you know <laughs> but that's not necessarily a bad thing I think mm. there's 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 ways that those things will be done and more and more people are looking at those gaps and how to continue doing what we're doing but doing them that's ethical and that's responsible right. and it just, you know, everything we've been talking about at least at the same point. It's be a bit more considerate about what you're doing. It doesn't matter if you're in a restaurant or on a farm or wherever you are. Be considerate about what you're doing because we've spent decades now ignoring the flow-on effect of our actions. <laughs> Absolutely. So I feel like sometimes a lot of the, um, the, the weight or the pressure or the expectation is that the chefs will lead the way and do this and to a certain extent they can mm. um, who else needs to hold some of that responsibility food writers for example like do but then I think in this day and age such a variety of bloggers and writers and um, you know I don't, you know, I don't know if it's fair to pinpoint any particular person as the leader that needs to lead. I think everybody needs to show like the their own. Also needs everybody to. needs to show their own little part, their own little part of leadership. I mean, until you get that community of people that are agreeing and working in an ecosystem together to a solution, it's never going to work. Um, and that's unfortunately a very hard thing to do when you talk about these things because there are a million opinions about everything. Yeah. And nobody is necessarily completely right. In fact, usually they're not because we don't know enough. <laughs> exactly right. Um, there's one that I've spent two years now spending my time with scientists and the one thing that's come out of it is that there's no such thing as certainty and you never know enough. That's what I always bothered me about science. I remember at school them just going, look, we just keep experimenting until we get the result we want. What? But what else do we have? Yes. Wow. We, have, we have no other option other than the most tried and tested process that has ever existed in humankind's <laughs> existence. I know, it's the yeah. only process we know that is designed to test itself to failure. Yes. Uh, so it's imperfect but perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Can you talk about any of your other projects? Uh, sure. Or choose a pro <laughs> something else to tell me about from your multi Sure. What have I been doing recently? 
Um, I've just been working very closely with a good friend of mine uh, who works on a social enterprise called the Social Food Project. Uh, his, they work around basically changing the conversation around the food system in a very kind of event-driven way. They use catering and events and workshops to tell stories, um, tell stories through food. So they host a lot of dinners using uh, sort of farming leaders to host a group of people in a, in a great restaurant and they do really accessible, low-level, low-price low, low point experiences around really beautiful produce. That's kind of like their bread and butter. But we've just um, gone through the throes of opening a pop-up wine bar here in town at the Brand Market, which hopefully will be opening this week, which is going to be great, which is a really nice bricks and mortar sort of attempt to have that conversation on a daily basis using the market traders as the equivalent of the farmer. So okay. invite the market traders in, have, you know, do workshops about their story, how they work, what the, you know, their extended network. Um, again, it's about community. It's about this ecosystem of people that work together on, a, on something and, mm. um, and share knowledge. That's a great idea. Mm. And what will that be called? Social wine project. Okay. Yeah. Social wine project. Project. And um, how long do you think they might run as a pop up? Hopefully, just over the summer. Which would be cool. Yeah. Yeah. The thing I really um, and we do have markets here. But I just, um, uh, when I lived in France for a year, just you know when you go to the market and you're speaking to the producer, which is what you're talking about, and getting that um, direct information about what they've been growing and what you know if you want to ask them about you know how is the season and what does that mean for your product and all that yeah. kind of thing and what can I do with this <laughs> tell me what to do with this um I love that yeah um I mean, this is such a rich conversation like you can talk about so many facets of this I mean every time I get stuck into a really deep conversation about food systems I always reference like a really sort of pivotal statement that I heard when I attended uh, the mad in Sydney a few years ago and David Chang said said something along the lines of um, you know our food system is going to have to change our food is going to have to be less delicious for us to be able to survive in the future or something paraphrased around that it's really kind of like flipped a bit of a switch for me Uh, immediately I was like oh that's bullshit you know like surely food's not going to be more delicious we'll just get better Um, but then you watch the direct trajectory that we're on and you go well actually nobody's changing their behavior we're still continuing to do what we do and you know land quality is still reducing water quality is reducing um i just saw a picture of somebody pulling a piece of plastic out of the muscle of a crab on a plate the other day like it's (laughs) you go like maybe he was right (laughs) unfortunately yeah um but i mean the exciting thing about this and this is where i always sort of turn the conversation is this is where creativity thrives and this is where, you know, it's not about presenting this doom and gloom picture. It's about going, you know, get excited about the fact that you now have the constraint that you're working within. Whether you like it or not, constraints make you more creative and they make the end products better, um, yeah. uh, more unique. And frankly, if you only have this weird, bizarre fish that you can never use to work with, someone needs to be really excited about that. It's kind of our job as chefs to be excited about that, right? Like, yeah. that's kind of our, it's kind of our, material to our existence as a greeter. Yeah. That is fascinating. I do just think sometimes things are cyclical though. You know, when we're going, now people, as you mentioned before, like the carrot tops, mm. you know, like this whole using everything. Yeah. It's so not new, you know. No, it's, it's not. what people were doing centuries ago. No, it's not new at all. Yeah. Um, but now we've realised that it makes money and so it's actually a good thing to do. <laughs> it really has to be a commodity, doesn't it? You know, that's well, yeah, and I actually, I actually think that's not a bad way to 
to work it because it actually motivates people. And it's the smart people that can adjust their business models and adjust their systems and their practices that go and make the most of that and they become successful and they actually change something. You're right, you are right. This whole um, feminist festival that I was at all weekend, yeah. they were challenging the idea of um, society as the machine and, you know, and whatever, you know, fuck the patriarchy and that kind of stuff. But um, Fuck the patriarchy, they're wankers. <laughs> absolutely, but not just for women. And, and they were saying that we quite often confuse, and I'm, I'm straying off track, but my point yeah. is sometimes we, um, so feminism is not just about equal pay, it's about equal human value, and sometimes yeah. um, it, I don't. Really, I mean, I've lost my point, but it's something to do with you know. Yes, it's not just. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. No, 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 I think I think I get your point. Um, I think like equality comes in so many different forms. Um, is this kind of where you're going? Like, and, and you know, value well, and economics. And, yes, that's right. I mean, so, so sometimes to see a difference, we have to put an economic value on it, and yeah. that women are equal to men. Yeah. And it's not. It shouldn't be about money because I think it does go a lot further back than of that. Of course, it does. But um, but maybe it's the same. But maybe you know, as we say, we have to put some kind of economic value on um, using the carrot tops to make pesto or whatever it is that we're doing. Um, yeah, people, people like putting boxes around things. It makes people feel secure, and if that box is a value, then okay. If that's if that's the box that delivers a solution, then okay. I mean, right now, if you look at all the positive change that's happening happening in the world rapidly, it's all driven by finances. <laughs> yeah. all, all all of the all of the things that are happening quickly are happening because there's money behind it. And that's maybe why we have to. Fuck the patriarchy because it, cause until we change those those paradigms, you know, like and, and the vocabulary around them, it's very difficult to mm. shift. But I don't. I mean, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. Oh god. But um, do you overall feel positive and hopeful about the food industry and food? <laughs> totally. Yeah. No. Hundred um, percent. I like everybody fall into traps of you know going oh shit everything's fucked. <laughs> But ultimately, it comes back to what I said before, and you know, like we're all really resilient. Like humans are super resilient; they're super creative. Um, I think chefs and the food industry and farmers and you know, the whole extended ecosystem—they lead that in some ways because they've always done a lot with nothing. Um, and we find really positive solutions to stuff. There's gonna, there's a million roadblocks in the way, and I cross them every day in conversations with people. I have arguments with people. I get people sort of disagreeing with me, and I'm like, yeah, cool, great that's fine but ultimately um, those conversations are just like the, the beginning of like really really important and, and successful change I think perfect I think that's enough great thank you <laughs> you've been listening to conversation with a chef I'm Jo Ritty, and thank you so much for joining me today. If you'd like to read the full transcript of the conversation, you can go to www.conversationwithachef.com or follow me on Instagram so you'll always be up to date with the latest conversation.